Um, we're, we're in the book of Zechariah, so you can turn there. Um, our God is a storyteller, and uh, he's been writing a story uh, from the very beginning of time, before time even existed, up till today. He's not only writing the story, he's directing the story and producing the story. And uh, he's writing a story, and it's about redemption. A story is about redemption, uh, even in the Old Testament. Uh, but like any good author, like any good storyteller, God is uh, always giving uh, some, some foreshadowing. Uh, in the Old Testament, we call it prophecy. In literature, we call it foreshadowing. That there's, a, there's kind of a picture of, hey, here's what's to come. Here's what this is going to happen, right? And that's, that's where we're at in the Old Testament. Um, you can only do this if you're the one writing the story. You can only tell people what's to come if you know what's to come, right? You can only do this if you know how things are going to play out, if you know what's going to happen in the story. And so God does this all throughout the Old Testament. He's going to do it today in our passage in Zechariah 12. But let's just look at a few of these where God calls his shot. <laughs> he predicts what's going to happen. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah written 600 plus years. Oh, that's not the voice of God. Uh, <laughs> Isaiah written 600 plus years before this says that the, the Messiah would be born of a virgin and he is. Does that not blow anybody's mind? Or Micah 5.2, written hundreds of years before this. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So the Messiah was said 500 plus years, hey, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. I don't even know what I'm having for lunch today, right? But, but God is calling his shot over and over in the Old Testament. We're going to look at it in Isaiah 53 in a minute. We're going to look at it in Zechariah 12. But I, I just want you to think, like, think, how? How could he do that? How could he have any sense of what was going to happen unless he knew what was going to happen. What are the, the, the chances that this could just randomly happen? Uh, many people have wondered this question and uh, people have done research on it. And if we can put it on the slides, Jeremy, uh, here's what it says. A professor at Westmont College in California has calculated the probability of one man fulfilling just the major prophecies made concerning the Messiah. For example, concerning Micah 5.2, where it states that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. They concluded that the chance of any one man being born in Bethlehem was one in 300,000. And so what they did is they took these eight, uh, just the eight major prophecies about Jesus. And they said, what's the chance? What's the mathematical chance? Now, how many of you are math people in the room today? Oh, me and David Shaw. Uh-oh. Okay. Uh, I won't ask this. Other, never mind. Uh, after examining, let's go to the next one. After examining only eight different prophecies, they conservatively estimated that the chance of one man fulfilling all eight prophecies was one times 10 to the 17th power. That means 10 with 17 zeros behind it. That is one in one quintillion. Had to look that one up. As the professor concludes, any man who rejects Christ as the son of God is rejecting a fact 
proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. If I gave you one in one quintillion chance that the Astros were going to win the World Series uh, later this week, how many of you would take that? You wouldn't, right? One in one quintillion because we, have a, we just have a very difficult time uh, estimating numbers. So I want to I illustrate it this way. Uh, if, if, you had, if I took a stack of $1 bills and I stacked them up right here, I should have, but I didn't have a thousand $1 bills. Uh, if I did that, that stack would be about 4.3 inches tall. So roughly this high. And let's say I just took one mark, I took a, a Sharpie and marked one of them. How, would you feel good about your chances of coming up and grabbing the one out of a thousand? Anybody feel good about that? No, right? You got one in a thousand chance. Now, a thousand thousands is a million. If you stacked up a, th- a million one dollar bills, you know how long it is? It's 358 feet. So if you lay it sideways, it's the length of a football field. You feel good about your chances of going and grabbing one out of a million? No. A, million, a thousand millions is a billion, which is 68 miles of $1 bills. That's the distance from here to Jacksonville, Texas. Do you feel good about your chance of grabbing that one out of a billion? Oh, we're not even close to a quintillion yet. Let's keep going. <laughs> a thousand billions is a trillion, which is 68,000 miles. It's a quarter of the way to the moon. From here, do you feel good about your chance of grabbing one out of a trillion? A thousand trillions is a quadrillion, which is 68 million miles or 125 round trips to the moon. And a thousand quadrillions is one quintillion, which is the chance that Jesus would come and fulfill just eight of these prophecies. 68 billion miles, 367 round trips to the sun. And I don't know what, some of you just go, numbers, right? And some of you go, wow. What are the chances that one man could come and fulfill these? Is it possible? It's absolutely impossible for it to be random. And, And if that doesn't connect with you, what I'm trying to say to you today is this. If it's impossible and yet it happened, then there must be a storyteller who's in control and writing this story, who knew what was going to happen, who knew uh, what was going to come and who Jesus was going to be. We can have great confidence today. You can have great confidence. You don't have to doubt. I love how the professor says, any man who rejects Christ as the son of God is rejecting a fact proved perhaps absolutely more than any other fact in the world. We can have confidence when we read the Old Testament, because sometimes we come to Zechariah and it's like, I don't know, I don't know about this, right? We can have great confidence that this is true and that it speaks to our lives today. It is profitable for us because God wrote it. I mean, you think about how many predictions people get wrong, right? Think about all the COVID mess, right? How many people predicted all kinds of things with COVID? And how many of them came true? (sighs) Who knows? Very little of them. Think about uh, the end of the world. People come out all the time predicting the end of the world, right? Every few months, there's a news article about it. Some cult has said, hey, this is the day. This is the hour. How often are they right? None. Why? Because they're not the storyteller. They're not the author. Genesis 3, 2,500 
thousands of years before, talking about a Messiah who would crush the serpent's head. Isaiah 53, 600 years before Jesus. Zechariah 12, 500 years before Jesus, speaking very clearly about who Jesus would be and what he would accomplish. This is not random. God is writing a story of redemption. The whole of scripture is valuable because it's pointing to God's plan of redemption of redeeming us from our major problem, which is sin, our separation from him. In our passage today, we're in Zechariah 12 and part of 13. Um, We get a glimpse of what's to come. And the glimpse is this, is that the good shepherd is gonna be pierced. He's gonna be crushed for our sins so that we can experience the fountain of cleansing. That's what he's going to talk about. That's, that's the prediction. That's the prophecy about who this good shepherd is going to be. He's going to be pierced. He's going to be crushed and become a fountain of cleansing for us. And what he's saying is that no matter what our past is, no matter what your ethnicity is, no matter what your background is, no matter how, how jacked up you are or how, how proper in your vest dressed up today you are, it doesn't matter doesn't matter where you come from. The good shepherd came for all. He was pierced for our transgressions. He came to rescue us. That's the story that God is writing and he's telling us 500 years before it happens what's going to happen. Last week we talked about, just, just to catch you up if you missed, nine through 11. And there's a prophecy that the coming kingdom is coming. And God is saying, uh, you, should, you should be aware the king is coming. and He's coming to set up his throne, but it's going to be unexpected. He's going to come not riding a stallion, but what? Riding a donkey, right? He's not coming to set up political rule. He's coming to be pierced. It's an unexpected kingdom. And there's this story of the good and the bad shepherds that we talked about last week and how the bad shepherds are dominating over the, uh, the sheep and treating them poorly. And the good shepherd comes in and he's all that a good shepherd should be. And there's a conflict and it leads today to the piercing, the bad shepherds piercing the good shepherd. But it's all in God's plan. So let's look at it. Zechariah 12, starting in verse 1. It says, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. And the siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. And on that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. Now, he's going to use this phrase, on that day, multiple times throughout this. I don't know how many. Um, but on that day references the coming day. The, and sometimes it's the end time. Sometimes it's Jesus, right? It's that mountain difference. You can't tell how far one is from the other. But on that day is this vision of what God's going to do in the end to make all things right. And the vision here so far, if you're a Jew listening to this, is really good, right? Because Israel has been dominated their whole life. They've been taken into exile. They've been the little brother. They've been the little country. They've been slaves and just utterly dominated their whole life. And the picture here is that on that day, they will be on top. Those who try to hurt Jerusalem will will be hurt. Those who try to lift it will hurt themselves, right? This is like, this is good, right? I think if you're hearing this in their day, you're going, 
We're going to get our revenge. We're going to be on top. We're going to be the rulers. We're going to, when the Messiah comes, he's going to put us on top. That's kind of the feel I think that they get. But remember, God's saying his kingdom is not uh, like in any earthly kingdom. It's different. He's doing something different. He's not about political rule. He's not about dominating other nations. No, he's writing a story of what? Redemption. So look at verse four. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. And on that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall be again, uh, shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So again, he's telling them about this kingdom that's coming, that God's going to one day, what, bring salvation. And to them, what they hear is, we're going to be on top. We're going to be rulers. We're going to be the ones dominating. And that's not what God is doing. They, they hear this and the curses that have been against Israel, panic and madness and blindness from the Old Testament. All of a sudden, now it's on the nations. They think that those who have been weak will now be strong. But again, it's not because of their own strength. Verse 5, it says it's because of the Lord. The only reason that they will have strength, the only reason that they will be saved, the only reason they can be a part of God's kingdom in the end is because of the Lord. He is the one writing the story, right? And we, we, we get into this sometimes in our own lives. We think, man, God, why did you do it that way? Why, why did that have to happen? And we, we, we want to be the author. We want to be the ones who's writing the story and writing ourselves into all the good parts, right? But God is the one writing the story and he doesn't, he's not bound by our wishes, He's writing the story so that we are redeemed and so that he gets the glory. And so the, he's not so concerned about putting Israel on top and making them this great world power. He's concerned about intervening on their behalf for their biggest need, which is spiritual. God's going to do this his own way. He's not going to do it the way we think we, he ought to. We, he's not going to do it in a way that really makes any sense to us. He's going to do it in his own way. Look at verse 10. And this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. Because this gives the glimpse of what is to come in Jesus. Verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Ramon in the plains of Megiddo. The plains, 
The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of house, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. And on that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. What he says is in that day, God will save his people and it's not a physical salvation. It will be one day, but on that day, this day that he's talking about, it's a spiritual deliverance. It's a spiritual salvation. It's not about earthly kingdoms. He's saying, he's making it clear that the way he's going to save them is through who? The one who is pierced. That's what he says. And look at verse, verse 10. It says that, that there's going to be this, this grace and pleas for mercy when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. And there will be mourning as if he was an only child. I don't know if you see it. I don't know if you can see ahead what, what he's describing who is me? What does he mean, me? Who's speaking? It's God. And who is him? He says me on him, on me, on him. Right? This is our Trinitarian theology here. It's sometimes difficult with grammar. But he's saying that God is the one who's going to be pierced. And they're going to mourn over it. How is... How is Think about it. They're thinking salvation. They're thinking rule. They're thinking domination. And they're going, God's going to be pierced? This, this makes no sense to their earthly mind. This is that they will mourn as, as that of an only child of a firstborn. It's got to be a picture that Jesus was the only son of the father. Remember, this is 500 years before Jesus ever came to the earth. And what God is, is portraying to them is that I'm going to save you through my son by him being pierced. And it talks a lot about their mourning that is individual, them by themselves, them by themselves. And what he's saying, I think, is this is not a public show of mourning. You know, this is not showing up to the funeral and crying so that everybody sees you crying at the funeral, right? This is a private mourning over the son. And, he, and he's speaking to the personal relationship that he's trying to create. This is not so much about the collective. It's about the individual, that each one of us must reckon with the one who is pierced. There is deep repentance and mourning over their sin because their sin is what has caused the one to be pierced. And what happens because of his piercing is it says in verse, uh, chapter 13, verse one, on that day there will be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. This is the result of the one who is coming to be pierced. He is there to cleanse them of their sin and uncleanness. That's what God's about. That's the story he's writing. Now, I want to give us a, maybe a fuller picture of who is this one that is pierced. Um, and this is not from the New Testament. This is still from the Old Testament. Flipping your Bibles to Isaiah 53, or it'll be on the screens. 
No passage in the Old Testament speaks so clearly about Jesus' death on the cross than Isaiah 53. And I just want to read it because it'd be a shame not to today. Remember, 600 years before Jesus ever came, before crucifixion even existed as a form of punishment in human history, this was written. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He's speaking about the servant of the Lord, him, the Messiah. Anytime it says he or him, he's speaking about Jesus, the Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was pierced, not for his own transgressions, for our transgressions. He was crushed not for his own iniquities, but for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Verse six, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. He opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. There is so much that we could spend time on here. So much to unpack. I mean, just 600 years this was written 600 years, 500 years. The, the, the one who is pierced is going to be the way that they're saved, right? This should give us such great confidence that what Jesus did on the cross was exactly God's plan. It was exactly what was needed. It's enough. It's the only thing we need to be saved. Look at verse 2. He says the, the one who was pierced, he, he was nothing. He had no former majesty, he wasn't something magnificent. He wasn't impressive like a, like a king riding in on a, on a horse. The one who was pierced was rejected by the powers, by all men. He was nothing to them, verse 3. But verse 4, even though he was rejected, he did what he came to do. Surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he has carried our sorrows. Verse 5, it tells us that he would be innocent 
He wasn't wounded because of his own sin. He wasn't crucified because of his own failure. He wasn't crushed by death because of what he had done. What does it say? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. What he suffered, his stripes, led to our healing. This is the good news of the gospel that that you and I, every single one of us are are sinners far from God because we have chosen our own way and what we deserve is what Jesus suffered. We deserve death because we sinned against the creator of the universe. But God's plan and story of redemption has been that he would not put that on you and me. Though we deserved it, what did he do? He put it on the one who was pierced. He was crushed for our iniquities. He, his stripes heal us. Verse six, it makes it clear that each one of us is is going our own way. And each one of us deserved the punishment that was laid on him, but it wasn't. God is choosing to save us by trading places, by putting all of this on Jesus instead of us. This is how he's going to save his people. Not through military might, not through some strategic plan to take over the world. He says, no, what you need most is a relationship with me. And I'm going to send my son to be pierced on your behalf so that you can now be my son and daughter. And Jesus came and he showed us the father. He lived a perfect life. The, The religious leaders didn't receive him. They saw him as a threat and they had him killed on a cross. And this was God's will. The verse that shakes me most is verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord because what he wanted more than anything was to bring us back into relationship with him. This is the story that God's writing. And if you flip over to the, to the New Testament, just, I can't not go there. John 19, to see what actually happened 600 plus years later. John 19, verse 31. Jesus has been on the cross and has, has been killed. And here's what it says. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who has saw it, he who saw it has borne witness. John saying, I saw this, I'm telling you the truth. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, that the Old Testament prophecies might be fulfilled. And he names two of them specifically. In in verse 36, not one of his bones will be broken. And then 37, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. What John believed in that moment and what we believe today is that the one we read about in Zechariah 12, the one we read about in Isaiah 53, the one we read about in Genesis 3 is Jesus Christ. And when he came and he died the death on the cross, he did it to, I don't know why he didn't need to have a bone broken. I don't know why he needed to be pierced. But that's what God said would happen. And then what happened? 
that. 500, 600 years ahead of time. You can have confidence. You can have full belief that this is true. God is writing a story of redemption to save us. And how can we be saved? By believing in the one who was pierced on our behalf. He's made it clear. Romans 3.23 says this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us, you, me, Every one of us, because of our sin and rejection of God, choosing to live our own way, deserves the death that Jesus died. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wage, what we have earned because of our sin, because of the way we have lived, because of the way we have rejected God, what we have rightfully earned is death. But he says this, but the free gift... The, the grace, the, the thing we didn't deserve is that God would rescue us and save us through Jesus. Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us once we got our acts together, once we got our lives picked up and put back together, once we were perfect, once we deserved it. It says while we were still sinners, while we were still rebels against God, he sent his son Jesus to take our place. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says the way that you can be saved is this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I'm here today to proclaim that. That if you don't have a relationship with God, if you've done your own thing your whole life, you can be confident today that there is a way for you to be saved. And I'm here to tell you what that is. It's Jesus, the one who was pierced for you so that you could be saved. This is his, his majestic plan <laughs> of saving the whole world was piercing his son. Makes no sense to us in earthly terms, but it's exactly what God wanted to happen and did happen. And so if you today know that you're a sinner and you place your faith, you know what? I have no hope. I can't earn my way to God. If you place your faith in Jesus, you will be saved. If you confess that he is Lord and that he has risen from the dead, you will be saved. And I'm here to tell you, you may doubt some of those things, but you can have confidence that it's true and it really happened. I want that for you. I don't want you to wonder and doubt and question. I want you to have confidence that Jesus was proclaimed beforehand to come, he did come, and what he did is enough to save us. Um, our band is gonna come forward and lead us in a final song. Um, and, and during this song, this is a time for us to sing, it's a time for us to worship, to be thankful for this gospel, this good news, that we can be saved, that we can have a relationship with God even though we don't deserve it. Um, so by all means, sing. Pray, sit, stand, whatever you want to do. At the end of the song, we're, we're going to be up front. If you want to come talk to somebody, you're like, man, I need to be saved. I need to know this Jesus that you talk about. We would love to have a conversation with you without the noise and the pressure and the constraint of three minutes and 
two choruses and a verse, right? Like, we want to be able to talk to you. And so we'll be up front after this is over. Um, if you want to talk or pray or whatever, we'll be up here. Um, but if you would, please stand with me. Let me pray. And then we'll worship God. Thank you for the good news of salvation that, that we don't deserve. God, thank you that you are the author of the story and that you know each one of us personally and you know where we're at. You know whether we're a rebel sinner against you, God, or you've rescued us out of that already. God, I pray for those who don't have a relationship with you, God. I pray that they would believe in their hearts and they would confess you with their mouths. I pray that they would understand this, this great exchange and they would become a participant in it with us. God, I pray that you would save many. I pray that you would rescue us out of darkness and bring us into light, God. God, I pray that we would have confidence in your word that is true and that you're the author of the story and you know exactly what you're doing. You've proven it time and time again. Great is your faithfulness, God. God, and so as we sing and worship, I pray that you'd be with us. We love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.